Right, welcome back to the podcast. So this week we've got a different episode. Um, we'll get into the topic in a minute, but first, before we get going, Dan, how's your evening? My week has been pretty busy, pretty sad. Um, I'm giving a presentation tonight to a group of coaches, um, which I've been preparing for because I don't want to look like an idiot. So I've just been overanalyzing things and you know, going through, you know how my grammar and spelling is, so I've had to triple check things. And so, yeah, that's really largely what's taken up most of today and a little bit of last night as well. I do my Monday check-ins for my second job, really. I suppose I should call it that, yesterday. So, and yeah, I've just been pretty busy with that. What about you? Yeah, same as me. I've just been really busy with coaching in the past couple of weeks and um, battling the Mate. snow today. I was about to say, I heard it took you 80 minutes to get to work this morning. You lived like 1.8 miles away. <laughs> it's, it's not even much of an exaggeration, to be honest. It, it was pretty bad, but we're uh, we're getting it done either way. So. For anyone I think me and my clients know, are... Uh... Matt drives an automatic. So an automatic in the snow can be horrendous. Actually, Dan, the car was in manual this morning. <laughs> that's the uh the benefits of my cars you can put it into manual but it doesn't really change much i mean it's still absolutely shit in the snow um you know as soon as you as soon as you buy a rear wheel car real wheel drive car bad, um and it says and it says mercedes on it it's it just comes with the territory that it's going to be shit in the snow so yeah, yeah. anyway yeah. so apart from a long journey to work this morning um and a few clients having to bail it's uh, it's probably going to be like that for the next couple of days. I think we've got more snow forecast, so it's probably going to be a little bit of a sort of stop-start kind of week this week. But after that, I'll be fine. This should be the last snow we get of the year. So moving on after that. So um, we'll get into the topic, will we? So Michelle. this week, we're going to be talking about training. Now, I said at the very start, it's going to be a different episode this week. We do try and rotate topics just so we don't feel like we're talking about the same things. And we like to give out different sort of nuggets of information to people. So... This week's uh, topic, as I say, will be training. And we're going to talk about purely training, come at it from a few different aspects. And uh, yeah, let's just get into it. So Dan, let's start off. Um, so, I mean, I think first, first what we should cover, just because this is the one of the age-old questions since I've been a PT that has always been asked when it comes to structuring a session. Uh, it's something that I have given advice for, against, separate is should you do cardio before or after weights i think i've been asked that about seven million times um and i've given an, an answer different <laughs> over the years so i'll let you answer uh, and then i will give my final answer now <laughs> go so in my opinion you should always do cardio after weight training if your goal is to get into the gym and get stronger and apply the principles of progressive overload. So you're asking your body to do more than it's previously done in order to give it a stimulus, which requires adaptation. Then you should always go into that session with your muscles and your body, your central nervous system being in its freshest possible state. So if you were to flip the opposite way around and do cardiovascular work before weight training, what you're doing is you're fatiguing the muscles before you're trying to apply maximal load or maximal effort to those muscles so the equivalent i would i would uh, square it up to um since most people will have done this at some point in their lives is if you were to do 
100 meter sprint and time it. And then the next time you time that sprint, you do a 10K run before it. Do you think you're going to be better or worse? After the 10K, you're going to, you're going to be a lot worse at sprinting. Why? Because you're fatigued. Your muscles are fatigued. So if you take that principle and apply it to weight training, weight training session being the sprint, the 100 meter sprint, if you do cardio before it, you're naturally going to have a worse weight session. Therefore, you're limiting your future progress. And in that means you're limiting muscle growth, you're limiting strength progression because you're not maximizing energy output. You're not maximizing effort because you've already fatigued yourself. You've already give yourself a worse chance of being able to progress in that workout, therefore in that program. Yeah, solid answer. That is 100% my answer. I will add on to it that not only from a not only from an energy output perspective, as you just kind of went over there, like you have to think we're not athletes. Most of the people that train are gen pops. You giving it all for both sets of cardio and resistance training, are the high likelihood is going to be low. So whichever one you do first is the one that you're going to put maximum effort to. You'll fuck yourself for the other. Personally, I'd keep them separate. Because you're going to dilute some form of stimuli for whatever training aspect it is through one of them. If you have to, because you're of time restricted and you can't get in as many days, fine. Matt just went over everything there. That's the way I would do it. Um, but I do think that, you know, if your goal is to move better, look better, feel better, get stronger, I do think you should prioritize more a resistance training protocol first before thinking about any form of cardio training i would also add to that something else that i didn't mention before is that weight training compound exercises in particular so when i say compound training i'm talking squats deadlifts overhead presses rows pull-ups all that stuff it's a skill right and when we're trying to perform a skill it requires a lot of neural capacity so you want to do that in your freshest frame of mind possible. So if you do cardiovascular work before and you're already feeling a little bit tired, your cognitive function is actually lowered. So take away the muscle fatigue element, take away the energy levels, take away the, the amount of energy that you can apply into the workout. Take that all aside for a second and just think about the sort of mental aspect of it. It's a lot more challenging to apply high effort to a skill-based exercise when you're already fatigued. So if your mind is tired from cardio, it's going to be harder to do weight training. On the contrary, if you're tired for the cardio because you've put a lot into your weight training, it probably won't affect you that much. I won't forget how to walk. I doubt most people listening to this will forget how to walk. I won't forget how to ride a bike. I won't forget how to go for a jog. I won't forget how to row on a machine. So if those are your, those are your cardiovascular options that you're doing post-training. They're not going to be affected by your weight session. Yeah, you might feel tired. You might feel a little bit run down. But in terms of a skill acquisition standpoint, they're not going to be affected technically. Yeah, I, I kind of want to come a bit from a whole perspective as well as like, if you think about it, running is a pretty full body movement, full body exercise. Your knees, your ankles, your feet, your hips take a lot of pounding. So if you do, say, a 45 minute run, 10K run, if you're doing it in 45 minutes, whatever, 45 minutes an hour, let's say, and then you try to go squat a PB for your top set, it's going to be difficult. Your ankles are going to be sore. Your calves are going to be tight, which is going to cause restriction from the knees coming out over the toes. 
your hip sockets are going to be sore, you're not going to be as loose, you're not going to be as limber, you have to think about joint and ligament and tendon, like appreciation and all of this as well, like my advice is just pick one and do the one and do the less important one after. Can you think of a single circumstance where it would be beneficial to do cardio first? Not for somebody that is looking to improve body composition, strength, or sports performance in certain sports. Health wise, I'm struggling to think of it. Health wise, somebody that is really old and um, that you know suffers from heart and um, conditions that can't do very much exercise, getting them to do simple things like uh, bike movements and, and uh, hill walking on the treadmill is probably my only, my only thing that I wouldn't actually incorporate into our resistance training program as well. Not sure if I'd yeah, give I just, it beforehand. Yeah. Yeah. The, the reason I ask is because I can't think of any examples. I think even in endurance sports, you know, swimming, skiing, even things like that. Even a marathon runner, if you're doing your marathon training, I would keep it separate from your resistance training. I would never say go do your mileage on a on the treadmill or outside and come indoors and work on your hips, work on your hamstring and um, strength, all that sort of stuff. I would keep them separate. I would keep your gym days, gym days, your mileage days, mileage days. So, yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Right, so we'll get into more training chat. So yep. one thing that me and Dan were going to discuss as well, and we can kind of just um bounce off each other with this one mm -hmm. is how to structure your training day so this is something that we'll get asked a lot as coaches and in terms of programming you know if you work with a coach hopefully they will understand this concept if you're coaching with me or dan we'll already cover this without you really knowing um i sometimes mention it to advanced clients but with most clients i don't even talk about it because it's not something that they need to worry about because it's something that they're paying me to do um but the structure of your workouts makes a big difference so when we say the structure of your workout we're really talking about both exercise selection and exercise order so for example what we'll traditionally do with new clients or let's say newbies beginners who are brand new to training don't have any training history whatsoever is we'll start off with say all over body training within all over body training covering loads of different muscle groups you want to try and learn basic compounds as a skill now I appreciate not everyone can do that. And I'm not going to pigeonhole every single beginner at the same stage because everyone starts in different spots. So we're talking in generalizations here. But with beginner lifters, your goal is to try and teach them to learn new skills and to do them well. Once that technique base is built, then you apply progressive overload. You get them gradually stronger over time, let their joints and muscles catch up to that. And that's how they adapt and see progress, right? It's also really fun seeing your body get stronger, seeing your body put on muscle and applying more demand so that we can burn more calories day to day. But in terms of how we do that, the compounds need to be at the start of the workout. So if I was to give you five or six exercises, talking to the listener, not you, Dan, um, if you were to do, say, six exercises in a workout, which to me, for a beginner, is more than enough, Um if you were to start off with, let's say, an isolation, like a bicep curl, and then you were to go into a rope tricep pushdown, and then you were to do your compounds, let's say bench press, pull-ups or something like that, that would be an extremely inefficient way to train, in my opinion. 
So what you want to do, which I'll explain in a minute, what you want to do is start off with the most complex exercises first from a skill acquisition standpoint. So let's say a squat, a bench press, a shoulder press, a pull-up, a deadlift, any sort of hip hinge. Um, you want to start with those exercises at the start. One, because we're using the most amount of skill acquisition. So you, know, you want to do them on your fresh. And two, they require the most amount of muscle fiber recruitment. So if I'm doing a squat, I'm engaging my upper back. I'm engaging my core. I'm engaging my quads, hamstrings, glutes. Everything is pretty much engaged in that whole body movement. Same idea with deadlift. It's a whole body movement. Whereas what I referenced to before, the isolation exercises of a bicep curl or a rope pushdown, those exercises are primarily just going to target one area or one muscle group. So if I'm using all of my fresh energy at the very start of my workout, my peak strength on an isolation exercise, I could be using that so much more efficiently on a compound lift, like a squat or a deadlift when I'm fresh and when my body's ready to train hard. Then you want to gradually think of it as like a pyramid system. You're gradually diluting down towards isolation. So at the end of the workout, that's when you do things like curls, push downs, hamstring curls or leg extensions or whatever. Um, and that's generally the order that I think we would always recommend. Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree with that. And like, just remember, you know, we work with uh, clients and, and, you know, Matt's very lucky to work with clients in a private facility where in maybe commercial gyms, that's maybe not always possible for you to do the order that the coach or however your programming is done for you. So my advice to that would be, um, if you are doing your own programming, that is the way that we would structure it. If you're getting programmed from a coach and you've looked at it and you've been like, well, I've got, say, I'm just giving examples here, like I've got a deadlift, I've got bench in the same day. The platform's taken and I can't deadlift and the bench is taken. I'll just go and do all the other little exercises first. And it's because you don't know any better. However, what I would do is I would maybe pick, say, for example, you're shooting for a big deadlift. You know, the chances of you burning yourself out really from going doing some little accessory exercises, you know, at the weight that you're doing, that's probably not going to be the end of the world. However, I would keep an eye on to see if the platform or the bench press becomes available because you want to do that move as soon as you possibly can. It's not something that you'll go like, oh, I'll do it at the end when I have time. I'll just get the bicep curls and the rope curls and leg extensions and the calf press done first. You still always want to have the intention of, I'm doing curls here, but I'm doing it whilst monitoring a platform. Because a platform you can do everything on. You can bet, you can drag a bench over, you can do bench press, you can drag dumbbells over, you can do dumbbell press, overhead press, squats, deadlifts, front squats. It's endless. Pull-ups, it's endless. So you really want to make sure that you're always prioritizing the multi-joint -move, movement movements first as part of your overall workout. Um, because my, my I myself have clients all the time to me come and say, when I, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, unless you're really pushing performance, it doesn't really matter all that much as long as you can get it done. But when somebody asks me, like, oh, I do it in this order, in this order, I would then pose the question as to, like, why? Why do you leave bench press for last? Because, you know, it's meant to be one of your main moves. It's meant to be your strength builder. And they're like, oh, I just thought, it's just because it's always taken. And I'm like, well, when you start going in the gym, just make sure you make a beeline for it. 
unless somebody's sitting on their phone using it all the time, you can genuinely walk around and people will start to be like, oh, okay, I'll get off that better kit. And that's why. Yeah. And one thing I would add to that as well, I was like, I say this to clients all the time. If someone's on your piece of kit and that's pretty much the exact routine that you have to do in terms of the exercise order, just go and work in with them. I'm yet to go into a gym and find someone using a squat rack or a deadlift platform, a leg press, because some, some gyms will only have one of these things. So like if there's a gym with five racks, great. You, you've reached heaven in the pearly gates because those, those are rare, right? But if, if you're in a gym that's only got one bar, one squat rack, and someone's using it for squats, just go over to them and say, look, can I work in while you're resting? You change the plates for them so they don't, it's no sweat off their back. And then you just go in and work with them. If someone's on a leg press and you just go in and change the weight and do a set whilst they're resting for two minutes, it's no difference to their workout. You're not... You're not putting them out. You're not asking them to do you a favor. You're just literally going into working and then you put the plates on for their set or you take them off for their set, whatever you're doing. It's no sweat off their back. I'm yet to go in, ask someone to work in with them and ever be rejected. Nine mm-hmm. times out of 10, when you ask nicely, people will be like, yeah, no worries, on you go. Now, don't expect them to do your plates for you. You'll have to do that if you're working in with them. But that's something that you can also think about, especially when your exercise order is very important to your session for example if you're doing a leg day and it's just lower body you're training that day you've got squats some sort of hip hinge leg press lunges leg extension hamstring curl or whatever like that if you're doing that workout if you're going for progressive overload on squat and the hip hinge it's very very difficult to do the other stuff first and then still make progress because you're going to be massively fatigued in that muscle group if you're doing a shoulder session and you do all of your lateral raises, face pulls, things like that, before your shoulder presses, it is going to take a chunk of weight off your top set shoulder press weight. And that's not something that you want to do if you're chasing progressive overload. So that's just something that I, I remind clients of a lot is, you know, ask to work in. If the leg press is taken, just work in with them. There's only one leg extension in most gyms. Just go work in. Yeah, and I mean, even if you are, like, not opposed to doing that, like, you got to think on your feet. And this is why, like, especially if you're with a coach, this is your opportunity to try and learn as much as you can. Like, if there is only one bench press or, or say there's one squat rack and you can't get to squat, you can't get to breath, uh, bench press, then, you know, you switching to doing a flat dumbbell press or a goblet, a heavy goblet squat, like, yeah, okay, it's maybe not the prime movement that you're meant to be doing on your program, but it's not as though you're switching out for... If you're doing bench pressing, you switch it for like a calf raise. <laughs> you're still doing, you're still going to get progress. It's just one session. And then if it becomes a trend and say, for example, there is only one barbell bench press, my client comes to me and says, look, you know what? Monday is international chest day. I can never get on it at 5 p.m. I would go, okay, can you get another bench? And can you grab a set of 30 to 40 kilo dumbbells? They go, yes. I go, okay, we're now going to do flat dumbbell press instead of barbell bench press problem solved yeah that's another piece of advice i want to give is don't do chest on a monday <laughs> if, if you're if you're a male listening to this it's just like so, somewhat wired into our dna to want to smash the pecs on a monday so just just don't i mean me and sergio do legs every monday and it's great in warehouse because most guys are doing chest and shoulders so you know you very rarely need to battle for kit and um you know just be different and you'll get kit the rest of the week when everyone else is doing something else on a Wednesday, you're now doing chest, you know? Every Monday since I've been about 18 years old has always been chest and arms. 
<laughs> so obviously that's coming at it largely from a beginner standpoint and from an all over yes. body training standpoint is there a situation where you would recommend or that you would validate doing isolation first before compounds for more advanced lifters yes injury um sort of prevention rehab yes um certain sports yes um that's an instance it's again it's very difficult to do it in a commercial setting um just because some of the all of the problems that we kind of spoke about there but yeah lacking body parts yes um it really depends on the the goal of the client but yeah that's what i would do yeah so the reason i ask is because that's actually personally what i do um i usually for my lower body training will do an isolation before i will do a compound um i don't really do it for upper body if i'm honest but i do it for lower body and it's for a few reasons you've already mentioned most of them dan um but i'll give the example of what i do um for legs at the moment so I will do a leg extension isolation from my quads before I will do a heavy squat pattern. And this is one to warm up the legs for injury prevention. Let's face it, we're not getting any younger. Um, and it's also from a safety perspective. So if I'm, if I'm highly fatiguing my quad before I go into a squat pattern that's targeting my quads, the weight I can use on that top set is actually reduced and it's more quad dominant because I fatigue that muscle. So for me personally, I'm very glute dominant. So when I when I squat, if I just go into it blindly and don't focus on using my quads, my glutes will take over the lift. My glutes will get bigger, my quads won't get any bigger. So for me, from a bodybuilding perspective, that's no use. So by pre-exhausting, by fatiguing the quads prior to squatting, I'm giving my quads no option but to really throttle themselves once I get into that squat pattern. Does that mean I can squat as much as humanly possible for me? No. But does that mean I'm getting the desired outcome? Yes. So that's a scenario where I would say isolation before compound lift is actually a really good idea. Um, another good example that I would give for that, and I've used this with clients in the past, is doing hamstring work before hip hinging. So a lot of people that me and Dan will work with, they struggle to connect the mind-muscle connection with the hamstrings. It's always more difficult with muscles that you cannot see to connect well with them. So when I mean connect, I mean feel. Um, so if I'm doing a hip hinge and I'm not feeling my hamstring work whatsoever, I'm only feeling the erectors in my lower back or I'm just feeling my lower back and my glutes, for example, my hamstrings are probably not doing that much if I can't feel anything. So by filling them up with blood, getting a good pump in the muscle prior to training, let's say via a hamstring curl, standing, lying, seated, whatever you choose or whatever the gym has, you're giving yourself a much better chance of actually having sensation in that muscle group. And therefore you're stimulating that muscle group more one, because it's pumped full of blood. So you can literally feel it. And also because it's fatigued. So with fatigued muscles, you'll feel them more when you do a compound lift, which is why it's great to do. So the best example I can give to this is if you train legs and then walk upstairs, all of a sudden you feel your quads and hamstrings when you walk upstairs. If you didn't train legs that day, you wouldn't have felt them. You'd have just walked upstairs and not thought anything of it. When you have really, really sore muscle groups or you have pumped muscle groups, you all of a sudden just feel them a lot more than you would have before. Um, 
one of the best ones for this is forearms. If you get to doing like heavy grip work, like farmer's walks or something like that, your forearms are like throbbing. They feel like the skin's going to burst after doing them. And therefore, after the rest of that hour, you're just going to feel your forearms. So that's a useful tool. If you struggle with hip hinging or you never feel your hamstrings or you struggle to connect with the quads, pre-exhausting before a compound can be a really good alternative to do. And uh, I've done it with a few advanced clients. I probably never recommend this for a beginner or intermediate lifter, um, but it's definitely a good exercise to do for advanced lifters, particularly if they're quite strong. Um, yeah. I've used it with quite strong clients in the past um, because it's not necessarily a case. Like with progressive overload, if someone's squatting 200 kilos, you don't want them squatting 250 down the line if their goal is muscle recruitment and to gain muscle tissue. If their goal is powerlifting, then by all means, just absolutely nuts. But if their goal is to grow muscle, you want to try and make the muscle that they're trying to work as efficiently worked as possible rather than just chase more weight on a bar. And it comes to a point where the injury risk for squatting that kind of weight is very, very high. And if your goal isn't powerlifting, there's really no reason to take that risk. Yeah, and I suppose as well, you kind of got to mention the fact as well that like, you know, maybe although we maybe don't recommend it for beginners as much, like it really is important that if you can't engage that muscle that you're meant to be working, it maybe is a good idea to pre-exhaust it. And we use the word exhaust really loosely. We're not saying take it to absolute fatigue um, and burst it in your first couple of sets so that when you do come onto the compound, as we spoke about before, that you're totally utterly like maxed out. We're talking about doing it and get an RPE of maybe seven to eight out of 10. You're leaving plenty of reps in reserves and you're not trying to think performance with it. I think you need to get your, your head out of that bit. You're not trying to hit a top set of, you know, 12 to 15 of the, as heavy as you possibly can. You're just engaging, filling it with blood, trying to get a little pump so that when you come on to do RDLs and you bend over, you're like, oh, there's my hamstring <laughs> instead of just yeah. my, my, my all the muscles in my lower backs and sort of, you know, your upper glutes. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's other things we can talk about in regards to training, um, such as how to structure reps and sets. So I think a lot of these people that listen to this podcast, um, I think a lot of you are re reasonably clued up in training. I think we have quite a range of demographic but I would say the average person that listens to the podcast is probably an intermediate lifter. I don't think the average is a beginner. I have some advanced clients who compete who listen to this podcast um, and who are really strong that listen to this podcast. So, um, I mean, I recently had a client, um, I'll give him a shout out, Steve. I don't know how many name clients, but this is a really positive one. I feel like we just can't name clients if it's really negative, but if it's positive, yeah. I feel like it's yeah, probably I think good it's to name good. them. I think it's okay. So my yeah. client... Yeah, my client, Steve, he listens to the podcast. He's a really solid client for me. He's been coming to me for years. Um, he's a big, strong guy. And um, I've been writing up a strength program for him. We've been working on the strength program for a good few months now, just basically doing it in four-week blocks, potentially five-week blocks when he needs a deload. And um, I just recently wrote out his brand-new block, sent it over to him. Week four is like his peaking week where he's going to test his strength. Weeks one to four, uh, sorry, one to three are basically just building up to that. So a little bit higher volume, week one, lower weight, week two, less volume, more weight, just gradually building up weight. Um, typical sort of strength program. And he came in to see me last night for his weekly PT session and said, look, I was absolutely desperate to deadlift 240. So on week four of the last block, which is his high effort week, 
he just went for it. He just went for 240. Did I plan or schedule him to do 240? Absolutely not. I didn't plan on having him touch that weight for a couple of months, to be honest. But he could do it, and he really wanted to do it. So he did it, and he managed. So there's there's situations and caveats to like training programs and structure. Um, not everything needs to be structured, and not everything needs to be perfectly on plan to enjoy and get progress from training. Um, and that's just that's just a really good example. Like he's went and hit a lifetime PB because everything's been going so well lately, and. Um, and he went off plan. And normally, like nine times out of 10, when clients go off plan training wise and they just go and do their own shit, <laughs> like it's like extra curls and stuff, isn't it? It's never normally like a, a like a PR deadlift. <laughs> it's like, okay, I did eight sets of cable curls. I'm like, why did you do that? Your pull-ups are, are shit today. What's going on? Oh, I did eight sets of curls. Okay, well, that, that'll be why. Your biceps are ruined. So your pull-ups are crap now. Um, so yeah, there's there's always a scenario where it can be okay to go off plan or be okay to sort of go away from the training program a little bit in order to hit a PB or in order to just enjoy something that you want to do. Um, and in Steve's case, like he's hit a massive goal for himself there. Um, and I think Steve as well, at some point will probably deadlift 300 kilos, which will be massive because there's not that many people can do that. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about his progress and he's, he's definitely uh one of these guys I would say you need to be careful with in terms of how strong they get the weights they use, you know, it's never, never important to think like that as a beginner to think about weights getting scary and weights getting dangerous. But with someone like him, like I've got to be careful what I program for him because he, he would get injured if I programmed wrong. You know, if I give him too much to do, he would get injured with those kind of loads that he's using. So, um, you know, there's one, what I'm trying to say is one situation is great for one person and terrible for the next person. And it really depends on your training age, your training program, exercise selection, exercise order are dependent on the individual. These aren't rules that me and Dan are talking about. There's always caveats to it. Yeah. And this is the thing as well. Like at the end of the day, at a baseline, the principles, there are many of them that can be applied, but you know, they're applied dependent on your client's situation. For example, you know, quite a question I get asked regularly, not even really from clients, it's, you know, how many sets and reps would I be doing? Well, personally, if I see that somebody has really bad form in something, I will generally program them a bit of a lighter weight, get them to practice more volume so that they can make more technique and practice with the movement instead of saying, right, you know, when you roll, your shoulders are really protracted forward. So I'm just going to give you, you know, let's do your heaviest first set of six. I'd rather you do 12, maybe maximum, a really good technique. And then from there, you build upon that. Somebody that's a little stronger, they can progress a little bit faster, that their technique is pretty point on with things and you're moving really well. I don't mind if you drop the reps slightly so that your ego can get a little bit of a stroke if you want to lift a little bit heavier. So it really is dependent about who you have in front of you, what experience they have, um, how they are in lifting in general. Um, because, you know, I've had people come to me and say to me, oh, I've been going to the gym for the last 10 years, going to classes and, you know, doing the occasional run on the treadmill does not make you any more than a beginner in the gym in my eyes. In fact, I think we've kind of discussed before, for you to be anything above beginner into intermediate, because I deal with beginner to intermediate, I would say, you know, you've got to be looking to hit the three to five year range of your gym experience. 
So that is following programs from a coach consistently for three to five years. You know, some people progress faster than the others, but I would say a minimum of three years done as a graft in order to be considered anything more than a beginner. Yeah, I would agree with that. You do get people who are like outliers who progress very, very quickly. Yeah. And they've just got a really good skill acquisition, particularly yeah. athletes. If someone's done mm-hmm. a sport before, um, someone's competed in gymnastics, football, rugby, they tend to make quicker progress with that athletic background. But it's mm-hmm. not like they're starting as a pure beginner because their athletic ability has already taught them movement patterns and skill. Yeah. So, you know, teaching someone who's played football or rugby at a decent level how to squat for the first time is so much easier than trying to teach a couch potato how to squat. Yeah. Do you know who has the one of the best skill acquisition um, skill sets that I've ever worked with? And you wouldn't think so because the sport's not as taxing, but golfers. Mm. Golfers yeah. always have a really high skill um, acquisition when it comes to applying really sort of more advanced style moves and applying themselves to it. They just take it like duck to war. Golf is probably one of the hardest coordination sports, and that's probably why. Yeah. Um, the hand-eye coordination for golf is probably more skilled than any other sport I can think of. Um, much more than tennis and badminton and things like that. Don't get me wrong, they're obviously a high level as well. Um, but golf is such, like you're talking just such small fractions from a great shot to a terrible shot. Um, so, so that's probably why it's probably a coordination thing. Um, another thing I was going to mention... Um, which we haven't really talked about already because I know you were just talking about like sets and reps and how that differs from person to person. Mm-hmm. Another question I get a lot is how many days a week is optimal? So if you if you say or if you ask someone, how many days a week should I train? I would always say, like I answer most questions nowadays, it depends. It depends mm-hmm. on where you're at. depends on your time. It depends on lots of factors. But in your opinion, how many days do you think is optimal if all other things are in check? really has to be if all other things are optimal in the check and if you are a beginner minimum I would say if you want to make steady to fastish progression three days a week minimum I personally don't think you need to be training any more than four um, certainly as a beginner uh, so yeah sweet spot I think would be three to four sessions a week you could even cycle it and do like three sessions one week four sessions next week or do it bi-weekly but yeah I, I think three to four it would be a sweet spot for for most people yeah i would agree with that i think as well a misconception when it comes to building muscle or getting strong is that more is better so how many days you train is just as important as the question how many rest days are you taking because when you're resting when you're sleeping that's when you're effectively building muscle and gaining progression. So if you don't rest, you're not going to be able to build muscle. Someone who's like, if you look at any sport where it requires hours and hours daily of training, they cannot carry a lot of muscle. If you look at marathon runners, the Tour de France guys, they can't possibly carry a lot of muscle because they're burning through muscle tissue as an energy source. They're burning through protein um, and they have very little fat stores because of it. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. For that sport, that's actually optimal. That's what you want. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're 90 kilos and doing Tour de France, you're going to be dead last. You know what I mean? You're not going to do well. But in terms of a building muscle and getting strong factor, you need those rest days. So I'll take myself as an example. Um, I could use multiple clients for the same example. But if my goal is to build muscle tissue, 
when I was a bit younger, I would try and train five or six days a week. And then I quickly found out that any time that I did that with applying progressive overload, even in a calorie surplus, sleeping great, I would get injured. So I've learned over the years that optimal for me with the kind of loads I'm using nowadays is four days a week. Four days a week is something that I have to do. Do I want to train five or six days a week? Yeah, I love training, so I want to do it all the time, but I can't do it if I want to progress. And I'm addicted to progression more than anything else in my training. So four days a week is kind of what I figured out is the best case scenario for building muscle. And when it comes to the flip side, when I'm trying to diet down, when I'm getting ready for shows, for example, that's when I would use five days a week. Am I building copious amounts of muscle in that deficit, in that dieting phase? No, but I'm using that also as a source of burning calories and being able to burn more body fat. So can I hold strength at five days a week? Yes. Can I progress it? Maybe, but it's optimal if I do four days a week. So that's just an example for people listening that more isn't better with weight training. And it's almost with some clients, I have to like convince them to take rest days. I'm like, no, you have to rest. Like if you don't rest, one, you'll get injured and two, you'll stop progressing. So by doing more, you're getting less. I think, you know, and, and, and I will like finish up on this, but we've been rabbing on a while now, but like for me, I, I'm just the type of client base that I mostly work with as well. It's all the sustainability thing as well. Yes, you can maybe go a month, two months, possibly even three months training five, six days a week, but then you'll go to do nothing for half a year. You'll pack back on all your weight because what you were doing before was really unsustainable. Is it sustainable to train three days a week for the rest of your life? Huh. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't find three yeah. hours in a week. I don't know what you're doing. Get up earlier. Go to bed earlier. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. I think there'll be some stage in life where building muscle isn't a massive priority for me. And, you know, bodybuilding isn't there anymore. I'm not competing or whatever. But I would say in that time in my life, I would still make an effort to train three or four days a week. Because I think from an optimal health perspective, from a mindset perspective, you know, because we all know the, the mental benefits of weight training, um, that's probably a good amount because you can go three or four days a week by just doing day on, day off. It doesn't have to be the same days every week, just day on, day off. You're getting plenty of rest days, but you're active enough to get the benefits, the physical and mental benefits of training. Perfect. Dan's watch is telling him to stand up. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just noticed it buzzed. <laughs> <laughs> right so is there anything else you want to cover or are we happy enough for that i think we have covered enough i think we've covered quite a lot yep i'm very aware that me and dan can get rambly and um, mm -hmm. go off on a lot of tangents we're trying to be a little bit more strict with the tangents so we're trying to stick to topic which is something that's actually not that natural for me and dan so it's, no. it's quite difficult for us so um so yeah we'll finish up there for today we do have a couple of exciting episodes coming up um we're going to get some guests on over the next mm -hmm. few weeks so look out for that if you're listening to this mm -hmm. one and uh, if you have any ideas or anything you want us to cover as always you can just let us know perfect right thanks very much